Thank you, Jenny, for that kind introduction. It's great to be back with you again to open the Word of God. Jenny mentioned that I did teach at Dallas Theological Seminary, and while I was teaching quite a few years ago, I really had a transforming experience in my own life as a professor. Some of the students, rightly so, were challenging some of the traditions of the church and the relevancy of the church, and really it drove me back as, as a professor to take a fresh look at what God intends a church to be. And little did I realize that that adventure for me would lead me out of the classroom, as Jenny said, after being a professor for 20 years to become a church planting pastor in which I was privileged to launch was become the Fellowship Bible Church movement. It was a life-changing experience for me, and really, uh, I often say, and not really with tongue-in-cheek, that I spent the first 20 years of my life preparing people to do the ministry, and the last 30 I've been learning how. (laughs) And that's out at the local church level. As I got involved in church planting, one of the questions that I had explored with the students, but also I wanted to explore with the people in my church, and that is, how do we measure success? How do we know when we become the church that God wants us to be? How can we measure that? And so today, I I would like to share with you some of the answers that I came up with early in my ministry and continue to believe in wholeheartedly and have taught for many years to the people that I've had the privilege of serving as a pastor. So my title today is The Measure of a Healthy Church. What is it? There's a classic passage that most of you are familiar with that I think gives us the big setting, the big picture. And it's Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, where he simply says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, that is, Jesus Christ, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers, equipping the saints, that's us, for the work of ministry. This is what God wants us to do, not just one of us but all of us, to build up up the body of Christ. And what happens when we build up the body of Christ as each one of us participates? We all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured measured by Christ's fullness. The Greek word for measured or measure is metron. We also get another English word from that, uh, metronome. Those in the music world know. And basically that is a standard. It's a relative standard. But when Paul uses the word, it's an absolute standard. And that metronome, if we could use that word, is Jesus Christ. He never changes. He is God. And when He came, we beheld the glory of God. 
And He is the one by which we measure our maturity until we all measure up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. But again, that's a generalization. Now, we all need the big picture. But once we get the big picture, we need to ask ourselves, what does that mean? Well, fortunately, the Apostle Paul answers that question in other letters. For example, let me take you to the introduction of the letter that he wrote to the Colossians. Now, let me simply say that when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he's writing, first of all, to the body of Christ, but we cannot measure up to Christ's fullness until we are in relationship with one another, so that leads us to local communities of faith as we're gathered here today. And the Colossians were a group of believers that gathered together. And Paul wrote a letter to them. And right at the beginning of the letter, and this is significant, right at the beginning of the letter, he said this, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, when he says you, obviously he's referring to all of them. In English, you know, we have a problem because we have the same word for a singular pronoun, you, nice to meet you, but we also have a plural pronoun, it's nice to meet you. And you know the difference because of the context. In the Greek text, it's very clear, second person plural. When we pray for all of you, Texas, we say, y'all. Not good grammar, but it makes good sense. For we have heard of your, and that again is a plural pronoun, we've heard of your faith, the faith of y'all, in Christ Jesus, and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope received for you in heaven. Now, there's no question here that Paul used three words to evaluate the extent to which these believers measured up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. Three words, faith, hope, and love. But that's still a generalization, isn't it? If we measure the stature of the fullness of Christ by faith, hope, and love, then we need to ask ourselves, what is faith, hope, and love? How do we recognize that? Well, Paul, again, helps us to answer that question by digging the wells a little deeper. Let me take you to his letter to the Thessalonians. Again, it's right at the very beginning of the letter, and that's significant. Right at the very beginning of the letter, verse 2, he says this. Now, this is a church that he and Timothy and Silas had established. Paul is writing back to this church, and and he wrote this. We, that is, my fellow missionaries, Silas and Timothy, we always thank God for all of you. That's good translation, by the way, to get it in front of us in English. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you, that is all of you, constantly in our prayers. We recall the presence of our God and Father. Now notice, here we get a more specific definition of faith, hope, and love, and how to recognize it. We remember your 
work produced by faith. How do you recognize the faith he's talking about as a measurement? Your work produced by faith. Your labor motivated by love. Your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses three words to help us define faith, hope, and love. Work, labor, endurance. Well, we've gone a little deeper, but we're still in generalizations, right? What is that work produced by faith? What is that labor motivated by love? What is that endurance inspired by love? How do you recognize that? Well, fortunately, again, in other portions of Scripture, we have the answer. I don't know about you. I'm a big picture person, but I like to take the big picture and then dig down and down and down to get the specifics. And Paul helps us to do that. So, let's take a look at each one of these. First of all, your work produced by faith. What is that? How do we recognize it? Well, to answer that question, I'm going to take you to Ephesians chapter 2. And here we, got, we have to realize that there are two facets to faith. The first facet has to do with our salvation. Not work, but faith. And so Paul clearly says here in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you're saved through faith. That's not a work of faith. That's God's work. By grace you're saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works. So when Paul writes and thanks God for their work of faith, he's not talking about works that they've done for salvation. Here Paul says, we cannot work for our salvation. That is a gift of God, so that no one can boast. Salvation by saving faith. But then immediately in the next very verse, he goes into the work of faith, what he was talking about in these opening letters, when he thanked God for their work of faith. He says this in verse 10, for we are His creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. As believers, we're created for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. In other words, here is a more careful definition of our work of faith. And when he says walk in them, he uses a really a beautiful Greek word, peripateo, and it's a a metaphorical word, and it means to walk, to walk. And here, to walk means to walk in the will of God or to walk in those good works. Now, the fascinating thing is that Paul follows up that generalization, and that is a generalization, right? To walk in those good works. He wants us to know more specifically what those good works are. And so, if you follow through that Greek word, the next time it appears is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, I therefore, in view of the fact you're saved by grace, I therefore, the prison of the Lord, urge you to, here it is, walk worthy. Walk worthy of the calling you have received. There he is now going to set the stage for this work of faith. 
how we're to walk. And he goes ahead and he develops this. And in summary, here's what he says. In uh, chapter 4, verse 17, no longer walk as a Gentile walk. And again, that's a generalization, and he digs that down, because if you go into that text and look at the context, you see that he's talking about walking in a new life in Christ. That's part of our work of faith. He goes on in verse chapter 5 to say we're to walk in love. And there he defines in context what it means to walk in love, part of our work of faith. He then says in chapter 5 again, walk as children of light. And there he says, defines what it means to walk in darkness, and now as believers, to walk in light. And finally, he says there in Ephesians, pay careful attention then to how you walk. And in essence, if you look at what he says there, it correlates beautifully with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul told the Romans to present their bodies to the Lord, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to Him. And not to be conformed, this world be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might prove what is a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. To walk those works that God wants us to walk, we need to walk in the will of God. So here we have a more in-depth look at this work of faith. And I challenge you to go back and take those scriptures and dig down even further as to what that means. Now, let's take that second concept. I'm going to use the word hope first here. So, we look at work of faith, we look at endurance inspired by hope. Now, once again, we can go back to Paul's letters to get a more specific definition. What does that mean? Endurance inspired by hope. Well, this time I'm going to take you to his second letter to the Thessalonians. In the first letter, he thanked God for what? Their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope, endurance of hope. How do you think he began the letter that he wrote the second time, about six months later? Well, here it is. We ought to thank God always for you. That sounds familiar, right? But notice what he says. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing. He's thankful their work of faith is growing. They're walking more in the will of God. And the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Your love is growing. But notice he leaves out Endurance inspired by hope. In fact, he doesn't even mention hope. Why? Well, you get the answer to that question when you get to chapter 2. And here's what he said. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, that is, the rapture that God has promised prior to the second coming to earth, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled. What is the opposite of endurance inspired by hope? What are the feelings? You're upset. You're troubled. You're anxious. You're fearful. Why were they 
experiencing that fear? Well, he answers it. Paul says, we ask you, brothers or sisters, not to be upset or troubled, either by prophecy or by a message or by a letter, supposedly from us, alleging the day of the Lord has come. A false prophet had come into that church and taught them that Paul was teaching the second coming of Christ had already taken place. What would happen to your hope if you believed the rapture had taken place and you're still here? You wouldn't have any endurance inspired by hope. And so Paul, in the rest of this letter, reestablished them in their hope. So we see that one of the first definitions of endurance inspired by hope relates to what Paul calls the blessed hope. The blessed hope is the coming of Jesus to remove the church from this world. So he reestablishes them in that specific aspect of belief. But there's a broader definition of hope that's related to that specific. And Paul speaks to it in Ephesians. And again, we can go back to the beginning of the letter of the Ephesians, and we can learn the broader definition of endurance inspired by hope. Look, look at what we see. But I want you to notice he doesn't begin right at the beginning of the letter. He begins with verse 15 when he says, this is why. Now, this is why refers back to the first 14 verses, which we'll look at in a moment. But this is why, since I heard about your faith, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We could say your work of faith, because he really defines that later. Your work of faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I'm really thankful for those qualities. But then, notice, he prays for something. What do you think he prays for? It relates to hope. And so if you go to verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now get this, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, listen carefully. I said he began, he made reference to faith and love and then hope, beginning in verse 15. How did he begin the letter right at the beginning? He began by saying, I thank God that he has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. I thank God that you're redeemed in Christ. I thank God that you have forgiveness of sins. And get this, he says, I thank God that since you are believers, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until Christ comes again. In other words, he says, you are secure in Christ. And then he said, this is why. I thank God for your faith and your love, but I'm praying that you may know the hope to which he's called you. Don't doubt the fact that you have salvation in Jesus Christ and you are secure 
because you have a down payment from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go on in the rest of the Ephesians, you'll find out that there were a group of Christians in Ephesus who were Jews who thought that they had a more significant hope than the Gentile believers. And Paul goes on to say, that middle wall has been broken down. You're one. We're all built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And therefore, we are one in Christ. There's one body, one faith, one hope in Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you notice that if you want a key to unlocking the epistles of Paul, here's one of them the way he uses the word faith and hope and love. In the Thessalonian letter, the second one, he went on to establish them in a weakness, hope. Here in the Ephesians, he went on to explain when he prayed for their hope that they might have the security in Christ, that they're all one in Christ, and they have been, whether Jew or Greek, all one in Christ. Their salvation is eternally secure. That is the basis of the endurance of hope. So what Paul is saying is, a mature church is more and more demonstrating a work of faith. A mature church is more and more reflecting their endurance inspired by hope. But what about the third quality that relates to their labor motivated by love. Well, let's take a closer look at that. Now, let me ask you a question that went through my mind. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how did Paul begin his letter to the Corinthians? Now, you probably wouldn't answer that letter or ask that question even unless you had done the research that I've just shared with you. Because we've looked at how he introduced the letter to the Colossians, the Thessalonians, the Ephesians. But isn't that a valid question? How did he, intro- how did he introduce the letter to the Corinthians? They were a church. What was their level of maturity? Well, let's look at it. Verse 4 of chapter 1. I always thank my God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Paul would always find something to thank God for. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. Now, if you know anything about the Corinthians, there wasn't anything in the church you could thank God for other than His grace. Because they were the most worldly, worldly, carnal, fleshly Christians in the New Testament world. It's it's obvious from this letter. And... So he begins by saying, I thank God for His grace. But don't make a mistake. It's not saving grace he's referring to here. He's referring to the grace gifts. You say, Gene, how do you know that? Well, it's right here. Because if you go on in verse 5, he says this, that you are enriched in Him in every way in all speech... That's giftedness and knowledge, giftedness. In this way, the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any, and here he spells it out, any spiritual gift. 
He's referring to the grace gifts as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, he says nothing in this introductory paragraph or chapter or the chapters to follow until you get way over into chapter 13. He says nothing about faith, hope, and love. The measurements of maturity. In fact, here's what he does say. Look at chapter 3. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as, a, as spiritual people. There he's referring to the year and a half he spent with them. He said, I knew you came to Christ. You believed in Christ. I saw you were gifted. But I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people, mature people. But as people of the flesh. In other words, you were still acting like unbelievers when I left you. I had to teach you as babies. You're still in diapers. I left you in a year and a half. You were still in diapers. And now that I'm writing to you another year and a half later, you're still in diapers. You're still immature. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food. You couldn't even handle solid food since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready while I'm writing this letter. And then he goes on to spell out all of the sins and problems in that church. And he finally gets to chapter 13, verse 13, and for the first time, he mentions faith, hope, and love. Now these three remain, Corinthians, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now I want to show you something. In fact, It certainly became insightful for me as I was studying what I'm teaching you. And if you'll take your Bibles or your iPad or your phone and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the context for that statement. And I'm going to show you how in a couple of minutes, I think you'll have some new insights into 1 Corinthians 13 that you haven't had before unless you've studied it in depth. And even if you've studied it in depth, if you don't see the bigger picture, we miss it. And here's what it looks like. First of all, in verses 1 to 3, and here's the caption, their gifts were not a measure of their maturity. Now notice what Paul wrote. Look, Corinthians... If I speak human or angelic tongues, like you do, and back in chapter 12 he refers to that and he alludes to it way back at the opening verses when he talks about language and speaking. But I do not have love, and you can legitimately put a parenthesis there, like you don't. You can verify that. That's... that's, That's interpretation, but I think you can verify that. Because he made no reference to love in the first 13 chapters. He said, if that's true of me, then I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. I'm just a loud noise. Doesn't mean a thing. Now, he's using a very... a very good technique because he's using a personal pronoun and saying, in essence, if I were behaving like you, 
this is what I, this is what it would be true. I'd be just a loud noise. And they said, if I have the gift of prophecy like you do, and he refers to that, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, like you don't, Corinthians, I am nothing. I'm a zero. Whoa. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give my body in order to boast, but do not have love like you don't have, Corinthians, I gain nothing. Boom. Can you imagine being a Corinthian and sitting and listening to this? Now, you can be sure they didn't take the scroll and say, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. There was no chapter 13. There was no verse 1 or chapter 13 of 13. It was a scroll. They begin at the beginning. They heard what Paul said all the way through. And they come to this point, and Paul says, if I were gifted like you and have not love, I'm nothing. Just a loud noise. And I can hear the Corinthians rebelling, because they were carnal anyway. Some of them didn't like Paul. Some of them had even rejected Paul as the one that led him to Christ. He had to defend his apostleship in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And he had led him to Christ. And what that simply says is their gifts were not the measure of their maturity. Most gifted church in the New Testament, most carnal. But then he says, now I know Paul sort of anticipates this. He says, I know some of you are mad at me, and I know some of you don't like what I've said. And some of you are saying, what do you mean, Paul, we don't have any love? Paul anticipates that and says, let me tell you how I know you don't have any love. I've told you already, but I'll tell you again, and I'll summarize it. And so, he demonstrates that in the next few verses. He says, love is patient and love is kind, and love is an envy. And do you remember chapter 3? I told you, you were impatient, you're unkind, and you envied. And he spelled it out. He said, that's not love. How do I know you don't have any love? Because love is not boastful, it is not arrogant. Chapter 4, he said, you are boastful and you're arrogant, and he spelled it out. Love is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable. In chapter 7 or 11, they were going to the Lord's table, the agape feast, and some of them were eating up all the food, so when the poor people came, there wasn't anything left. That's about as rude as you can get. And some of them were actually drunk at the Lord's table. He said, Corinthians, love doesn't act that way. You see what he's doing? He's summarizing everything he said to demonstrate they didn't have any love. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Back there in chapter 5, they were going to law against each other before pagans. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, rejoices in the truth. And here is the big one. They were rejoicing in immorality in the church where there was literally a relationship between a father and a sibling. Incest. Now, that shows you the depth out of which these Corinthians had come 
in terms of their moral behavior prior to the conversion. And there were still shades of that. And the Corinthians were bragging about it. These are saints. He calls them saints. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How do I know you don't have any love? I've told you, but here it is. I'll tell you again. In other words, he's saying their love was virtually non-existent. And then he ends the chapter. Their focus was misdirected. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they'll come to an end, Corinthians. They're temporal. As for tongues, they'll cease. They're temporal. As for knowledge, even it will come to an end. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, when will the perfect come? When we're face to face with Jesus. Then the partial disappears. The partial will come to an end. And then he uses a personal illustration. He says, look, Corinthians, when I was a child, I spoke like a child too. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, Corinthians, when are you going to grow up? When I became a man, I put childish things away. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. When you got up this morning, looked in the mirror, before you did anything about it, what did you look like? It wasn't very pretty, at least my recollection of myself, but the mirror was honest. You see, when the Corinthians looked into the mirror, what did they see? Impatience, unkindness, envy, boastfulness, arrogance, rudeness, self-seeking, irritability, records of wrong, rejoicing, and unrighteousness. Who should have been reflected in that mirror? When we look into the mirror, who should come back at us if we're growing as a body of believers? Jesus Christ. The image of Jesus Christ. And so he says, someday we'll be face to face. No mirror will be like him. And then he says it in a different way. Now I know in part, but then I'll know fully. When will we know fully? When we're with Christ. As I am fully known. But he says, Corinthians, now, right now, these Three, remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. First time he mentions those qualities in this list. What was the goal for the Corinthians? The same as for all churches, faith, hope, and love, but especially love. Here's a principle to live by for all of us. When evaluating the success of our churches, we must look for the degree to which we as believers are measuring up to the fullness of Christ by reflecting faith, hope, and love, but especially love. And I could say, and all that that means. Here's a question. I think it's a legitimate question. I've asked myself this question as a pastor. If Paul sat down and addressed a letter to your church, to my church. How would he begin the letter? What would he thank God for? Well, I think in many churches he can thank God for a lot of things, a lot of good things. But the thing he's really looking for is faith, a work of faith, 
love, a labor of love, and our steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's a question. The world calls this a tease. (laughs) If faith, hope, and love are a reflection of the fullness of Christ, which I think it certainly does from Scripture, which is the measure of a healthy church, how do we produce these qualities? Well, thank God the Bible tells us, and next week we'll look at the answer to that question. In the Scriptures, aren't they marvelous? Let's thank God for the Scriptures and the truth that we can understand. Just think of the gift God has given us in order to know His will. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we thank You for the Word. And we want to be men and women who reflect faith, hope, and love. We know we can't do that by ourselves individually. But together, as we grow in Christ, we can measure up to the stature of the fullness of Christ and reflect this work of faith, this labor of love, this steadfastness of hope. We realize we'll be in this process until you come again, until we're face to face. But in the meantime, help us never to forget these goals for our lives, we pray. In the name of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus, and all people said, Amen. Amen. God bless.